and I walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. It's widely believed that this is the phone that has changed phones forever. Turning to our top story this morning, and that is confirmation of the first case of COVID-19 in the Republic. I need you to get me your vote on November 4th. Let's get Brexit done. As you know, here on News Talk, we are looking back each day at the 20 most influential moments of the first 20 years of this millennium, as picked by you, our listeners. And today we're going back to 2011, when Queen Elizabeth II visited Ireland, becoming the first British monarch to make an official state visit to Ireland in 100 years. Michael Foley, Sunday Times reporter and author of The Bloody Field, joins me now to discuss this. Michael, why was this so significant? Well, I suppose it was just such a hugely symbolic visit, Kira. Like when you think of the places she laid wreaths in terms of, in terms of the war, of, or the Garden of Remembrance, and also, and also at the War Memorial for for those who, for those Irish soldiers who had fought in wars, and then on top of that, she makes a visit to Crow Park, mm. where you've got fourteen people killed by by police in November nineteen twenty, and then she makes uh, a hugely symbolic speech in Dublin Castle that night that kind of pulls everything together, and I suppose it's just the idea, I suppose, in terms of Crow Park in particular. Um, it's just it's the idea of you know the Queen going to Crow Park was at one time in the very recent past before 2011 would have almost been unthinkable. I mean it was only four years since the Irish rugby team had played England at Crow Park and there had been all the debates around even the whole idea of the English flag yeah. flying there and God save the Queen being being played and so on and yet suddenly here was the, here was the Queen walking out in Crow Park and it all felt completely normal and, and uh, you know, all part of a kind of a normalising of relationships between both islands. And, and, and we kind of forget, as you say, that the, the four years earlier that the, even the, the debate about raising the, the Union Jack in Crow Park, but we kind of forget now. So did her visit change relationships going forward? Well, I think it certainly pointed in the direction where the relationship should go. I mean, if you think about the speech in Dublin Castle that night in particular and related back to something to a place like Crow Park, where she spoke about the history of the islands and the shared sense of loss that between between both islands and how we can never forget those who were killed or injured during conflicts between both islands. But also she spoke about how we need to be able to bow to that past, but not be bound by it. Yeah. And she, talk, she spoke about the importance of forbearance and conciliation and so on and so forth. And for me, you know, that that's still highly relevant now and it probably always will be between both islands. So I think in terms of both in terms of symbolism, but also in terms of where the relationship can go between both islands, given their troubled past, um, she certainly pointed it in the direction it, 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 where it should go. You know, no, thank you for that. Indeed, that is Michael Foley, their Sunday Times reporter and author of The Bloody Field. Well, now it's time to talk about News Talk's most 20 influential moments of the past two decades. Our special series is exploring a different moment every day as chosen by you, the listeners. And today we want to talk about a very historic state visit in 2011. Prince Philip and I are delighted to be here and to experience at first hand Ireland's world-famous hospitality. Together, we have much to celebrate. The ties between our people, the shared values, and the economic, business, and cultural links that make us so much more than just neighbours, that make us firm friends and equal partners. 
Well, the only Irish man to be part of the Queen's visiting party in May 2011 was Bobby McDonough, former ambassador of Ireland to the United Kingdom. And he's on the line now. Bobby, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Pat. So as ambassador, you got to travel with the party. Well, I didn't travel on the same plane as the Queen. I was no, at the foot no. of the steps, and after after Eamon Gilmore, my wife and I were the next to, to greet her. But it's part of the protocol of these things that the ambassador based in the country from which a state visit is incoming accompanies the party during the visit. So, you know, it was it was a remarkable experience. It was the high yeah. point of my diplomatic career. Not that I claim particular credit for it, because many people were involved, but to actually be present for that series of incredible moments was, was definitely the highlight of my, now, my Bobby, career. Were, were you on tenterhooks that things could go wrong? I think for something like that, you have to be on tenterhooks. I mean, obviously, the security arrangements were, were uh, very, very serious. Um, but there was a good feeling about it because the relationship um, between the officials on both sides, you know, the Department of Foreign Affairs, the Taoiseach, and, and their British counterparts, and of course between the Auras and, and the Palace, were remarkably good. I mean, British and Irish people basically uh, speak the same language, metaphorically as well as linguistically, and the entire visit was planned in a spirit of uh, of great friendship and amity. So, yeah, I was nervous. I'm a, I'm a nervous person by nature, but I, I, I do remember that as the as the Queen's plane was landing um, and we were waiting in the VIP room in, in Baldonnell, um, our own protocol were so remarkably relaxed. I mean, if, if I were just doing my own thing, I would have sort of run out to be on the tarmac to be there, you know, three or four minutes before the plane pulled in. But no, it was all very, very calm. Uh, we, we strolled out, we got in position, you know, just before, before the doors opened. Uh, so the professionals who manage these visits on both sides, I think, exuded an air of calm. Now, you say, Bobby, we uh, all speak the same language. Now, the Queen was faced, however, with this. Have a listen to this clip. Your Majesty, Captain Tom Holmes in charge of the Guard of Honour. The Guard of Honour is drawn from the 2nd Eastern Brigade, the Air Corps and the Naval Service. The Guard of Honour is ready for your inspection, Your Majesty. Now, before the English bit, of course, uh, all the instructions to Guards of Honour are, are delivered in the first official language. Uh, um, the Queen has inspected many Guards of Honour, so I'm sure she wasn't dismayed. But you remember that? Yes, I do. I mean, f- many of the events during the visit had been sort of carefully programmed and I was looking forward to them. But when the Queen and her party arrived, the first thing was to go to the Oris, the where they were formally greeted by President McAleese and uh, the Queen went in to sign the visit with Prince Philip went in to sign the visitors book and then they came out to the steps of the Oris and the uh, the honour guard was lined up as is the norm for these uh, state uh, visits and the officer in charge of the honour guard marched up to in front of the Queen and he barked because that's what soldiers do in these circumstances he barked Bonry and Eilertado Queen Elizabeth II and I hadn't sort of been aware that that was part of the protocol but to hear an Irish soldier uh, speaking like that to the Queen of England at the residence of the Irish president, uh, it gave me goosebumps and made the hair stand on the back of my head. Hmm. Now, the visit went down well, uh, not alone in this country, which uh, you know might have been surprising given the noises that some were being made in some quarters, but it also went down well in the UK. Yes, it did. Um, there was wall-to-wall coverage on television and radio in the UK, and it was all entirely positive. 
before the visit, as always, there were people saying, you know, how much is this going to cost and what will the security be like and so on. But it went so smoothly. Uh, as I said earlier, like the relationship at the very highest level between the Queen and the President, political level, administrative level, was superbly good. One of the British officials commented to us that the press operation that we had organised was the best press operation that they'd ever seen. And uh, a senior British security person came over before the visit to you know, survey the security arrangements to see what, what they thought of them. And I understand he went back and he told his colleagues in London that the security was even better than we could have done ourselves. Now, I, I don't think he, he meant that literally, but he certainly meant that it, they couldn't have been better. So the whole thing had a huge impact in the UK. And I found when I was then back on my posting as ambassador in London that every time over the next few years that I mentioned the Queen's visit in his speech, there was spontaneous applause from the British people present. It wasn't that I had said anything particularly memorable, but people had such a warm memory of, of course, the Queen herself and her dignity, but of the way that she was welcomed in Ireland. So yes, it, it did have a, an impact. The, the way I and there was sort of, you know, she she had her moments of informality. We all know about the English market in Cork, but also she met her own people, the horsey people, and was able to chill uh, on those visits. Yes, she did, but she didn't bring the party with her. That was very much a personal thing. It, was, it wasn't part of the state visit as such. Of course, she loves horses, and that, that was part of it. But as you say, the, as, the, as the visit went on, everything became more relaxed. Naturally, there was a degree of tension around, but when the warmth of the welcome and the universal nature of the welcome was seen, the Queen then did a, a walkabout with young people in Cork, which hadn't been uh, formally or indeed... Uh, in the programme, but it was something that probably people had at the back of their mind. But the thing had gone so well that that level of informality was achieved. And of course, her visit to the Cork market was very informal as well. So I think the British people don't understand Ireland necessarily as well as we understand them, because that's normal between a large and a small country. And I always had the sense that um, a lot of British people know that Ireland has some sort of gripe from history, not, not the modern IRA stuff, but that makes us really want to beat the British at, at rugby and so on. They're not quite sure what it is. And what I used to say after the visit was that they still didn't fully understand what our gripe was, but they now were pleased that the gripe was gone and that British, Britishness and Irishness had reached a moment of reconciliation that was hardly dreamed of. Now, this had been built on many years of diplomacy and, and so on. Uh, and, you know, if you were to take the graph and follow it as it inexorably went upwards, things would be absolutely wonderful today. But of course, they're not because of Brexit. Does it dismay you the way things have gone? Yes, it does a bit. I mean, I don't think we're back to the bad old days. I mean, let's remember that the Queen's visit uh, was setting the seal on half a century of progress based largely on shared membership of the European Union and on the Good Friday Agreement and, and the peace process. So it set a really important seal on something that had been happening. So the decision of the British people on a particular day in 2016 to leave the European Union clearly poses a problem. I mean, I, but I, I remember being present at the Katie Taylor winning her gold medal at the London Olympics and the crowd was divided between British and Irish entirely. They got all the tickets and it was the loudest sound recorded during the Olympics. And when Katie was fighting, the entire crowd, British and Irish, were on their feet cheering her. And similarly, when the British boxer Nicola Adams was fighting just before that, the Irish crowd were giving her the ole ole treatment. So th that level of warmth was something that we, we couldn't have even imagined would happen some years before. We're now faced with Brexit and... Um, we're waiting to find out today whether there will be a trade deal or not. Um, but whether or not there is, the relationship 
is going to change in some way. It's, it's not just that Ireland will be in the European Union and the UK outside, but we've chosen different paths. We have different views of sovereignty, for example. I mean, the, the British negotiating position this evening uh, is largely based around a notion of sovereignty. And of course, Ireland is deeply attached to sovereignty. There can hardly be a country in the world that has struggled more for its sovereignty. But we see sovereignty as something to be to be shared and to be used to advance our, our interests internationally rather than something to be mm. hidden away from the light. And we also have different views on going global. Um, we believe that going global, it's a big advantage to be part of the largest trading bloc in the world, whereas the British seem to want to do it on their own. So there are different ways of of, uh, of approaching the world now, but the friendship is still firm and we need to work at it for many reasons, history, trade, culture, and of course, peace on this island. And I'm sure that the Irish government and the, the Irish people will continue to do that like the British counterparts will. But unfortunately, all of that now has to be managed through the prism of Brexit. And uh, we scarcely talked about anything else until COVID came along, but um, no doubt Brexit is going to be writ large over the next uh, few days as vaccinations have kind of pushed COVID slightly down the news agenda. Bobby, look, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Bobby McDonough, former ambassador of Ireland to the United Kingdom, uh, talking about the Queen's visit to this country in 2011. And there'll be more coverage of this throughout the day. Sean McCreef will hear about the, the vast security operation that took place, one of the largest and most expensive in our history. And Kieran Cuddy will speak to former President Mary McAleese. Time to look again at some of the most influential events of the last 20 years. And today we're going back to 2011 and the visit of Queen Elizabeth to Ireland. Apart from the political importance of that, security was of paramount importance. And right in the thick of it was Assistant Garda Commissioner Pat Leahy, who joins us now on News Talk. Afternoon, Pat. Hi, Sean. Uh, I, I always am, I wonder, is there or is there not a meeting, Pat, at which the various parties uh, in advance are involved and they say we want to visit X, Y and Z and then uh, somebody who's looking at it more from a security point of view says, I wouldn't go there or I wouldn't go there or that's OK. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit more, um, I suppose, involved than that, Sean, but you're, you're absolutely right. Of course, there were meetings. I mean, look, there were structures in place uh, at national, regional, divisional and district level around this. I mean, this this was the biggest security event of our lives in terms of policing uh, in Ireland. It was a historic event. We were all very much aware of the sensitivities associated with it, but there were both national and international uh, sensitivities. The reputation of the country uh, politically was at stake and the reputation of Magarishikon was at stake in terms of whether or not we had the capacity uh, to do this. And on top of that, it, uh, because it was so sensitive, there was a very short planning cycle involved. The information only made its way out to us you know, about six months out from the event uh, itself. Now, this would normally be a two-year planning cycle for something as big as this. So it was truncated into about six months. And we had Barack Obama coming in on the 23rd after the Queen leaving on the 20th. Oh, crazy! So it, it was really, really intense uh, for us. And uh, and Gareth O'Connor were under scrutiny from the state, the Irish state itself. You know who were saying like, "Are they going to be up uh, for this?" And from the UK, who were equally concerned. Well, this is a huge operation. It's hugely sensitive. Can they pull it off? So these were the type of sensitivities that we were uh, dealing with. And from our perspective, we had to prevent any negative interaction at all. I mean, even the likes of of, of an egg or an orange hitting mm. the car would have been unacceptable. So we were down to that kind of a granular approach to it. 
But yeah, because yeah, you imagine there's all the usual suspects might and and in in fact did try to do things. So it, even for things like an, an orange or an egg, did the, is that basically just keeping a distance between any crowds or individuals and the the, the cavalcade that she was travelling in? No, it's much more detailed than that, Sean. We had to test from the word from the time that we got the word that this was happening. We had to test our crisis preparedness and our emergency preparedness as an organization within the state. You know, could we deal with anything that was going to uh, arise as a consequence uh, of this visit? So we were all the time pressure testing our preparedness for, for a crisis associated with such uh, visits. I mean, for example, while the famous speech was taking place in Dublin Castle, there was significant public order or disorder taking place at Christchurch, where we had hundreds of protesters. So we were managing these on the periphery. And uh, we have managed it very effectively, but that required us in advance of the visit taking place to engage in uh, substantial training on public order because we can't forget this is 2011 and uh, we were in a financial crisis. There wasn't a whole lot of training uh, going on in lots of areas. So we had to step up and make sure that we had the capacity to deal with anything that uh, arose. On top of that, we had our, our divisional search teams working around the clock uh, we nearly burnt them out. They had so much to do. And uh, just as an example of what they would be involved in, we have to identify the primary, secondary and tertiary routes that the Queen would be travelling on. Uh, the primary routes would all be searched and then they'd be uh, subsequently searched by guarded divers who would go in and search all the manholes and then they'd seal the manholes afterwards and we would have to mine those. You know, So that went on around the clock. All the street furniture had to be removed. All the homes along the roads had to be visited and the, the occupants spoken to, flats, apartments, shops, restaurants, pubs, clubs. We had to know who was in all of them across the, the roads to see what risk we were uh, dealing with and how we were going to mitigate that risk. Some businesses were asked to close. You know, and uh, in fairness to them, they really engaged with us and businesses did close and there was there was no giving out about it. You know, they weren't complaining about it. They fully understood the significance of what was about to take place. Now, all the sites that the Queen was going to visit had to be searched. Some of them were actually dug up and replanted. Hmm. And all, uh, so like we really had to go into great detail in relation to this. And of course, we had 24-hour patrols then in all of the places where the Queen was going to be. And as we got closer to the day they had to be increased in numbers. So we had several control rooms going. We had control rooms going at regional level and divisional level to maintain the communications with the thousands of guards that we had out working to monitor the CCTV, to maintain a link with our helicopters and with our planes, to make sure that we were on top of everything that was taking place. Um, again, just as an example, on the morning that the Queen arrived, we briefed 2,500 people down in what's now the Three Arena. We booked it out completely. We had to brief them first. We had to feed them. We had to make sure that they got enough rest, that they were transported from uh, site to site. We had to arrange their accommodation. Uh, we had to communicate with all of them. We had to provide supervision for them. So it really, really is a, a big operation. And we had to maintain normal policing capability at the same time throughout it all. Well, indeed, so, yeah. And, and so, it was quite can, a challenge. Was it like, if you like, a dry run for Obama or was the Obama visit a bit easier? Well, the thing about it was, and, and I, I can remember... Uh, we had two days in between the two visits and hmm. when the, the, the Queen's visit was so highly charged and, it, and, and emotionally charged for people as well and the, the, as I said the planning cycle was so tight coming into it that once the Queen left it was like letting out a gasp of air everybody flattened out immediately but we had two days to get people up and refocused I mean their energy was gone uh, they were tired 
And we had to re-motivate and say, listen, we have an event about to take place in 48 hours, you know, that on its own would have been the biggest event of the year or probably of the, of the decade for us. So it really was to get back up and running and at it again. So a huge requirement for an integration of effort between the uniform section, detectives, specialist units like the air support, the water unit, the dogs, the horses, the search teams, divers, public order, experts, communications. We had multiple escorts going every day, every hour, you know, so that the city, like it all, was really impacted as a consequence uh, of, of, of the visit. But the community came together so well and they provided the experience that was required to remember this the way it is being uh, remembered. And despite all the disruption, the community, certainly, and I'm speaking about Dublin here, mm. they just came together shoulder to shoulder and they created the experience that we all now reflect on as one of the moments that uh, stand out uh, for us. People understood the uh, historical significance of what was taking place. Pat, thanks a million for speaking with us today. That's former Assistant Guard Commissioner Pat Leahy. You are listening to The Moncrief Show on News Talk. I want to return to News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past 20 years. We've covered Saipan, 9-11, water charges, boom and bust, plenty of others as well, even the rise of streaming. But today we're going back to May 2011 when Queen Elizabeth II visited Ireland, becoming the first British monarch to make an official state visit to Ireland in 100 years. Of course, when the Queen visited, Mary McAleese was President of Ireland and I'm delighted to say that she joins me now on the line. Mary, you're very welcome to the hard shoulder it's good to talk to you good to talk to you Kieran. Uh, I mentioned May 2011 of course the, the process the ball was got rolling an awful long lot, lot before then you might remind us how that happened what was the start of all this well the start of it goes right back actually to 1995 before I became president at all uh, when I had a private lunch with Her Majesty the Queen in the context of I was working for the Queen's University of Belfast at the time Pro Vice Chancellor the university's the old Queen's Colleges, as were, that is, um, Cork and Galway and Queen's Belfast, were celebrating a big anniversary, and I was involved in those celebrations. I had met the Queen through those celebrations, and as a result of conversations, let me say, shortly after those celebrations, which were held in St James's Palace, I was invited to go and talk to her. Um, and I did that um, in a private meeting. And during the course of that, I was very taken with the fact that um, she clearly was, um, she, there was, a, there was a, in her mind, um, um, there was a, a really strong will and desire to visit Ireland. Um, she'd never been there. She said to me jokingly that she had had some 25 horses, I think, in training, <laughs> but that it wasn't just about coming to see the horses run, which she never had done in Ireland, but rather it was about making a contribution to the ongoing search for peace. And that was 1995. And the chances of that happening, of course, then were remote, to put it at the smallest, because we didn't even have the Good Friday Agreement. But I did say to her then that, you know, the people were working to create the situation in which um, that visit would someday be possible. Uh, the when of it, none of us knew. But when I became president, of course, I had the opportunity to meet her many times. And we always talked about that, about that visit and how it could be made possible and what kind of things 
um, would need to happen or were likely to happen, need to be needed uh, to have happened um, before the visit was possible. So we were always keeping our eye on that and looking for the right moment. And 2011, which was in May 2011, which was shortly before I left office, if you remember a few months earlier, we had a change of government. Yes. And... Um, and, and it was a kind of particularly fraught time, it was a difficult time, you know, the end of the Celtic Tiger and all of that. And um, I, we, but we were now quite far down the road from the Good Friday Agreement, after all, and, and the St Andrews Agreement and the changes to policing, all of which were now in place. And it seemed to me that the moment was right if we could manage it. And so I said to the then uh, Taoiseach, who was leaving office, Brian Cowan, um, I said, look, I think the time is right now and we need to do this. Would you, um, you know, would you initiate the invitation to Her Majesty the Queen? And he fair Jews to him said, I will if the incoming Taoiseach, that was uh, Enda Kenny, would be agreeable. And of course, mm. Enda was immediately agreeable. And that's how it started um, mm. uh, with that conversation. So um, I have to say both those guys got it. And when you go back to 95 and she was she began speaking to you about, about you know, this longing she had to come to Ireland and the connection she obviously had with the country, historically as well, through, through her horses that she had trained here. Well, yes. Like, well, what was her level of knowledge about Ireland? Or, or maybe well, a better way yes, of asking but that is... that was what, the interesting thing. I mean, to my surprise, she was very, very well informed. So too was her husband, uh, who was at that lunch. We had invited President Mary Robinson and um, to that same event, and Queen Elizabeth very kindly was hosting it for the universities. So my job was to take her around and introduce her to all the little groups of people who were you know, ready to meet her in little groups of 10. But some of my colleagues in Queen's uh, were taking a kind of a, a delight in the fact that they thought that I would, of course, in so doing, be obliged to curtsy to her. Mm. Well, I don't do curtsying. I don't kiss rings. I don't genuflect to bishops or popes or and I don't I don't curtsy I regard all of that as really um, long past its sell-by date in terms of the dignity of the human person and belonging to an era you know of empire and um, and you know the, the 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 poor and the oppressed and the did, elite. Did, did so that provide think... a little bit of a diplomatic headache for anyone that you weren't for going me, to curtsy? It did. It, it, it provided it for me because say, some of my unionist colleagues were taking a kind of a special delight in uh, keeping me going, as we would say about it. And so I decided that the best thing I could do was to come at it straightforwardly. So I phoned her Majesty, the head of Her Majesty's household and I said, look, if it causes a problem for her, then I would be more than happy to relinquish the job um, and let someone else do it. And he said, look, he was so calm and casual about it. He said, oh, he said, don't let that worry you at all. He said, in fact, Curtian's going out of fashion. He said, and she's a professional. She can handle anything. Anyway, that was fine. I went off. I did the job the next day. I escorted her around. As it happened, she and I got on like a house on fire. And um, uh, I found her very easy company. Yeah. And then a week later, the same gentleman, the head of Her Majesty's household, rang me and said, um, do you remember that conversation we had and uh, um, the explanation she gave me? Well, he said, I relayed that to Her Majesty and she would like to talk to you. Because I did explain to her how I, who had grown up in Northern Ireland, um, you know, in a household that was very law-abiding and horrified, of course, by the troubles, mm. nonetheless, on Christmas Day, when she spoke to what were called her loyal subjects, 
we always knew that there was a view that we were not among them. You know, that we were not regarded as loyal by virtue of being Catholic and Irish nationalist. Um, and we, we talked about this sense of remoteness, uh, this, this phrase, loyal subjects, and how it was desperately loaded in the Irish context. So that's when she said to me, she understood that and that, it, you know, that uh, she started to explain her, her um, desire to visit the Republic, but not just to visit. Mm. I mean, I knew then it was about... It was about someone who knew the history and would like to be involved in, in some way, playing a role in the reconciling. Uh, when I came into office and met her subsequently, we knew each other. And so I, I knew that she would come. And I knew that um, when in March, bearing in mind, we made that agreement in March. Yeah. And she came in the early part of May. You could imagine, I mean, her diary is normally set years in advance. But they pulled out every stop in the book to get a visit in May. If you're just tuning in to us here on The Hard Shoulder, Mary McAleese, former president of Ireland, is with me speaking about one of News Talk's most influential moments of the last uh, 20 years, and it is the visit of Queen Elizabeth II in May 2011. Uh, Mary, in terms of the, the visit itself then, uh, how much of an influence did you and did uh, Queen Elizabeth have on the actual itinerary? Or is that completely just put together by, by outside forces? No, it's a mixture of both. Um, but I think it would be fair to say that we both put a very firm stamp on it. Uh, she and I both, um, you know, had long experience of dealing with um, those agencies. And we also had a long desire for this meeting. And we, we both had a fair idea of what would be what would work well. Yeah. Um, and um, so it, we had, as you can imagine, there were quite a number of strategic meetings designed to, to you know, to to um, put that to put the to put flesh on the bones of um, of that. And uh, out of the blue, I have to say, but probably not entirely unexpectedly, in my view, um, she helped to create a back channel between her um, her people and mine, basically, or between herself yeah. and myself, uh, in the person of the man who is now her personal private secretary, Sir Edward Young. He was then deputy personal private secretary. He arrived on March 17th to the Arras, um, asked could he speak to me privately, and he said, look, um, tell me what you think would work, and Her Majesty would like to know uh, what kind of things you think okay. uh, would be important here. I told him. And um, among the things I mentioned, of course, was going to Croke Park. Uh, would she go? Um, uh, and uh, would she be interested in going? Um, and the Irish language, I mentioned to him that there would be, you know, that even the use of five words in the Irish language would be, uh, would have a remarkable impact. The Garden of Remembrance would have a remarkable impact. Mm. So those were the kinds of things I w put Was there anything, sorry and, to interrupt, was there anything you mentioned that didn't make it into the itinerary? Was there anything you kind of look back and regret that maybe, God, it's a pity we didn't get that in there? Absolutely not. No, I don't think you'd tell me not. anyway. No, I, I can tell you hand on heart. Um, I, have no, I mean, I have, there's no vested interest for me in, in, in telling otherwise. No, uh, there was absolutely nothing I suggested that eventually did not make it into it. On that particular occasion when I spoke to him, he was not at all sure about the Irish language. Right. And he explained to me that the sensitivities around it were such that she would be very afraid of making a mess of it. And in, since she was only going to make the one speech, um, during the visit, that the worry would be that um, it would, you know, it could cast a shadow 
But I did say to him, look, I'm only talking about five words and I think they could make an enormous difference. But he came back to me very, very quickly having spoken to her. The Garden of Remembrance was not a problem at all. Croke Park was not a problem at all. She would like to go there very much. Um, the Irish language, he said he, there, there was still a lot of uncertainty about. Okay. So I said to him, look, I said to him, forget it. I said, the only reason I raised it was I think it would be it would be a remarkable phenomenon if it happened. I don't think it would be as difficult as she thinks. But on the other hand, I'm not going to push it. Well, listen, we actually have a have a little clip uh, of that uh, famous speech and those famous Cúpla Fóca Las Gaeilge. Here is Queen Elizabeth II speaking in Dublin Castle. Argus Akoiza. It's, in, it's interesting that in the context of that partic- those particular words, what I, actually, what I said to Edward Young that day was, look, I said, Edward, I'm only talking about five words, but I never said to him what the five words were. And um, subsequently, a few weeks later, I had a visit from a friend of mine who had been the British ambassador to the Holy See, was now the um, High Commissioner in Islamabad. And he rang up and said that he was on his way back from Islamabad to London. Could he drop in? And I said, like, via Dublin? And he said, oh, yeah, I just want to have lunch with you. And I said, fine, come on ahead. But I, back in my mind, I thought there's something more to this. And the first thing he said to me over lunch was um, he took out this raggedy piece of uh, envelope from his pocket. And he said, would you write down the five words that you told Edward Young um, you thought that the Queen could use? And I said, hang on a minute now. I said, I'm not going to do that because I'd be afraid of you raising this when you go back to London and then it looking like I'm re-raising an issue that is closed. He said, no, it's not for Her Majesty. It's for Edward. He said he forgot to ask you what the five words were and it's simply for his record. And so I said, well, on that basis, I'll write them out. I wrote, the, I wrote them out phonetically on the back of a raggedy old envelope, which he treasures to this day uh, and has with him now in his new posting. Uh, he's a, he's um, uh, a vice chancellor of a university now in Australia. And um, <laughs> uh, anyway, the next time I heard those words um, were when Her Majesty the Queen got up and uttered them. And so, oh, so, I, so I, sorry, and so, so that shock on your face, that was genuine because it, you, you you, it, it. it had been parked. The issue had been parked as far as it you were concerned. Been, it had been forgotten, parked, left behind. Um, and um, he, I, actually Sir Edward Young was in my line of sight when she got up to speak and he winked at me and laughed. Um, and I knew what he was saying was, we played you. Um, she obviously trusted me enough um, to use those words. And um, and I think some of my staff also, you know, the staff and the Aris were well, certainly very, very close to me who were involved in the whole thing, were well in on the joke at my expense. Um, but at the end of the day, it was a wonderful moment. Um, was it, was it your standout moment? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it was a standout moment among quite a number on that day. For me, it was, here's a woman who absolutely trusted my judgment. And I think that um, both our judgments were correct in that regard, that this would melt hearts, and it did. Um, It was a token of a measure of her commitment 
to a visit that wasn't just a, an, an everyday state visit, um, but was actually a pilgrimage of reconciliation on her part, for sure, and, and a, a welcoming her as a pilgrim of reconciliation on our part. So I, I, I think that um, it, there were a number. I think the other, for me, standout moments were the unexpected nodding of her head when she went to the Garden of Remembrance, bearing in mind that everybody who is commemorated in the Garden of Remembrance is someone who um, actively tried to um, eliminate uh, the British Empire's influence and governance of Ireland. Um, and um, so when she went there and she laid the wreath, bear in mind also that was the first event. That was the first formal event, going to the Garden of Remembrance. And she nodded her head as she stood back and she placed the wreath, she stood back. And then unscripted, this was not anywhere in the protocols, she nodded her head. And again, I think you could almost feel the tectonic plates shifting all over Ireland as people said, this is something special. This is an iconic moment where words could never fill the gaps. They didn't need to. And then I think the other really, for me, major moment was when she stepped out onto the hallowed turf of Croke Park, stood and looked up at the Hogan stand. And uh, um, the then um, president of the GAA, Christy Cooney, said to her, you know, ma'am, he said, this is where we're, you know, this is where uh, Michael Hogan, after whom this stand is called, was murdered by British troops in November of 1920 in an event that became known as Bloody Sunday. And, um, you know, a particularly bad day um, in of in Irish history when a number of British, uh, British um, uh, so-called British informers were murdered that morning by the IRA and then in the afternoon um, at a football match. He said British soldiers came onto this very turf and opened fire, killing a player and 13 uh, women, men, women and children. And I honestly thought that she was going to break into tears. She was she just said to him very quietly, and this was all, uh, none of this was shown on television. I mean, you could see her standing, but you couldn't hear the conversation. But she just said very quietly to Christy and I, I know, I know. And it was said in a tone of abs abject sorrow is what I would describe it as. Wow. And I thought for one moment, you know, that she might, you know, that she might actually cry. She was desperately moved. I think the fact that the GAA welcomed her with a warmth and um, with a real Irish hospitality that was in no way, you know, capped offing or overly deferential. It was equal to equal, but she was the visitor and a very welcome visitor, warmly welcomed. Um, and for me, that was important because initially I had suggested the visit to Croke Park, but had received fairly significant pushback mm. at our end. Oh, right. organizational end. And they were not keen on the idea. They thought that if it got out publicly, uh, that such an invitation had been issued, or had more importantly, if the GAA had declined to invite her, that it would put, you know, that it would sour um, the, the, the lead up to the visit. And I understood all that, of course. But I also, in, in my discussions, I, I knew the GAA very well. I'm GAA, I mean, I've often said I'm more GAA than I'm Catholic. I'm steeped in the GAA since childhood. Yeah. Um, and I, I have huge respect for the GAA and I know it very well. 
And when the pushback came, I was thinking, these people really are not fully au fait with the, what I might call the spirit of the GAA. And so I said, well, look, I think we need to ask them. And there was a little bit of reluctance. And they said they would send um, a former diplomat uh, as an emissary on a diplomatic mission. And the next I heard was that that diplomat uh, had said that it could not happen, that Croke Park were not willing um, to issue the invitation. Now, to be honest, um, yeah. when I did not know who the diplomat was. I wasn't told at that time, but I asked. And when I, when I did find out the name, I said to myself, I wonder, did he actually go and ask anyone in authority in Croke Park? So I got my husband to double check and we discovered um, to our horror that Croke Park's hierarchy uh, or their, their senior government management had not been approached. They were horrified that they hadn't been approached, but had, uh, had someone on their behalf um, had spoken for them. And um, so the upshot was that my husband and the head of the Department of Foreign Affairs at the time, David Cooney, they went and had a meeting with the GAA and the GAA were, were, were a little bit worried about Ulster in particular, about um, the Ulster GAA. Yeah, know, understandably. Strong. Yeah, and I wasn't, I wasn't the remotest bit worried because Danny Murphy was the, you know, he was the general secretary of the GAA in Ulster and Danny is from the next parish to me. He played football for Ruth Drever. I know, you know, I, I, yeah. I knew Danny as well as I knew anybody. And I knew that his heart, where his heart would lie. And, and he asked a simple question. He said, is this what the president wants? And my husband said, it is, Danny. And her view is, if the queen is coming to Ireland, she wants the queen to see the best of us. And the GAA is the best of us. And Danny said, in that case, he said, then... It's our duty to do what the president wants and to do it well. You know, there were there were things in the in the visit that we had no say in at all. I mean, um, uh, the, the the choice of going to Cashel, I think, came. I think Julian King and the British side okay. um, came up with that, and uh, I think that was a brilliant idea. And as it turned out, unknown to any of us, um, it had a an extraordinary side to it because, as you remember. Sinn Féin had decided to have nothing to do with the visit mm. and they had instructed all their um, their uh, their councillors and their, um, their and their politicians to have you know not to take any hand act or part in any of the events well as it happened the mayor of Cashel was a Sinn Féin member and completely out of the blue on the day she arrived in Cashel he went and met her and welcomed her he yeah. just decided. And he decided that it was the right... Well, first of all, we were two days into the visit there, three days into the visit, and it was going exceptionally well. Gerry Adams had already said that her speech in Dublin Castle, you know, was exceptionally good. Yeah. So the mood music from Sinn Féin had changed all right, but still they hadn't said, you know, join in the fun and festivities. No, and... So and, this man decided of his own bat to do that now none of us were to know that at that time he was dying from cancer and indeed died just a few months later but it was an act of um, real um, courage on his part political courage yeah even just talking about those few bits of it it, it was such a, a huge success widely regarded as such a huge success and like, in the years since do you keep in touch with her 
Yes, of course. Um, I most certainly do. You know, I, I can't say we write to each other or phoning each other every week, far from that. But yes, um, every so often, you know, um, there, we would uh, engage in correspondence, um, you know. Um, and uh, more recently, of course, I uh, sent her a copy of the memoir, my memoir, um, and I got a very nice letter back from Sir Edward Young. Um, uh, saying he, how thrilled he was uh, to have it and how thrilled he was to uh, be able to uh, pass the book on to her. Um, so, yes, uh, I mean, that, that there would be some degree of correspondence, mm. but she's a woman whom I, um, I mean, and I'm speaking as somebody who is, you know, a, 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 a strong believer in, um, in the, the people and in a republic. Uh, I'm not by any means a monarchist, far from it, um, but she is a person. Um, I have huge respect for and what she did in those four days I think played a, a, a role in what I would call a, a time of really um, quite wonderful healing of history. Are you watching The Crown? Oh I have watched it assiduously. Well, what do you think? <laughs> mm, yes well I don't imagine that um, I, uh, I think it's uh, mm, it's very watchable if you're not a member of the royal family. Okay, well, that's um, a, a nice diplomatic answer. That's the best I could say about it. Um, <laughs> it is certainly, it's certainly very good entertainment. But I'll tell you the truth of the matter. I mean, I think her husband is 99 and I think she's in her late 90s. And it must be very hard um, after a lifetime of really self-sacrificing service mm. to her nation um, to have to um, see yourself portrayed um, in in the light uh, in which she's portrayed in the crown. Um, so I think that's the difficult thing. Um, okay. But certainly from an entertainment point of view um, and from an investment, uh, I can, can only begin to imagine the horrendous costs associated yeah. with producing <laughs> the crown. They must be extravagant. Um, but um, yes, I think it's... Um, it must be very difficult for her um, at her advanced age to um, to see herself yeah. and her family portrayed in the light that they are portrayed. That's the difficult part. But, you know, from a human being to human being, um, uh, I think uh, my my experience of her yeah. um, is as, um, and, and I'm very privileged to have that experience, I know, is of um, of a woman of great sense of humour, very exceptionally well read on Irish affairs uh, with a, uh, you know, a really good grasp of Irish affairs and a deep affection for Ireland, which she really wanted to exhibit um, when she came here. Former President of Ireland, Mary McAleese. Mary, an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And pleasure to talk to you too. Take care.